Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And we are joined by a very special guest today who sent us PDFs of the second draft or the final approved draft. I can't remember which draft it was the other day. And I've been racing through this book. It's a monumental work. Who are we talking to today, James? Well, I've been really looking forward to this. We're talking to an old friend of mine, um, now General Ben Kite. So he's a general in the army. Um, military intelligence is your background, isn't it, Ben? Um, and you wrote a fantastic book on the British and Canadian armies in Normandy called Stout Hearts, which I've used shamelessly That's over a and over. Stupendous book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and now you've done a two volume history of the RAF and Commonwealth Air Forces in the Second World War. And it, it's a hell of a thing. I mean, it really is. The detail, the, the kind of the granular level of which you've managed to dig down. Um, is amazing and and fantastic also to see all those statistics and photographs and stuff incorporated into the books um, which you've managed to plunder very cleverly from Seb Cox and co over at um, the Air Historical Branch so it's brilliant that that archive has been properly used so um, many congratulations welcome, and thank welcome, you, and, and thank yes, you for coming congratulations. on well, uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you. It's brilliant. It's brilliant to be here. I think after those gushing words, I, I feel I ought to just leave now because I don't think it's going to get any better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm glad you had a chance to sort of flick through volume two of the of the recent book. And I completely agree, James, the, the photographs that the Air Historical Branch have uh, and also um, uh, people like the State Library of Victoria um, in, yep. in Melbourne and the Royal Australia. Air Force Museum. I mean, they, they really picture paints a thousand words and they bring it to life. So I'm glad you enjoyed those. First things first, though, you're a soldier. What on earth are you doing writing about the Air Force? He might say. Uh, a good question. Uh, I think by accident is probably the most honest answer. So, so having written Stout Hearts and um, and, and that is a, a, a soldierly book, if, if I could describe it like that, uh, about the army, the, uh, the Canadian British Army in Normandy. Um I wondered what I was going to write for the second book. The publisher wanted me to write something on the First World War, but I'm not, that's not quite so sort of keen on the First World War. And um, and then it occurred that I could use the same sort of model I used for Stout Hearts, like explaining how an army works uh, for the Air Force uh, and, and explain how Air Forces work, how they conduct their operations, bring in the personal factor by having lots of lots of anecdotes from the air crew that are doing the missions themselves. Um, and, and funnily enough, um, it, it also kind of resonated because I have uh, my, my family history. I know that's something that uh, we have ways is often very interested. My family history is, is, is more of an Air Force and Fleet Air Arm history than it is a, an Army one. So, um, so to sort of write about events that involved uh, my great uncle and my uh, grandfather uh, and perhaps even my grandmother, who was also in the RF. Um, you know, seemed seemed you know seemed quite nice. Well, I I think one of the things that really comes across in the uh, over the two volumes is is just the range of different types of operations that the RAF is is um, flying in the Second World War. I mean, it really really is amazing, and I I would love to to touch on Bomber Command. I'd love to touch on on what they were doing in the Far East, which you give you know quite rightly, in my opinion, um, good credit to. Um, 
Uh, and I'm also very keen to talk about the development of tactical air forces as well, which, of course, you cover particularly in the um, in this second volume. But I'd love to start with just a little bit on coastal command, you know, which which is which is the forgotten command, isn't it? Let's face it. I mean, you know, you, you know, if, if 14th Army is a forgotten army and the and Southeast Asia is a forgotten kind of um, theatre of war, then coastal command is a forgotten part of the RAF, isn't it? And, and one of the things that really strikes me is this, this, this notion that they have a because they're their own independent command within the RAF, they have a different approach to innovation, to um, technological know-how. This this kind of bottoms-up approach, which is quite kind of quite new. And you know, I, I was I'm just fascinated by that. So I so I think uh, I mean there's, there's so many um, areas of excellence in, in the Commonwealth Air Forces in the Second World War. I think Coastal Command is definitely one of them, and um, I think they are. Uh, they can claim that mantle of sort of being you know, particularly excellent, I think, for a number of reasons, one of which is their very joint approach to working with the Royal Navy. Um, and you see that at all levels. Um, uh, but I think the second one, James, is you absolutely say is innovation. And I think the innovation comes from a number of uh, reasons. It comes from from having a really good lessons learned process mm. uh, so captain payton board so, so what is that so 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 what so what is that process yeah so so um so it's it, it, it it's initiated largely by captain payton ward who was um a, uh, an ex-royal navy submariner who is the royal navy lo at coastal command at northwood and and what he does is he um uh, he invites or directs every air crew that has an encounter uh, with a german u-boat to come to northwood where they are debriefed uh, and they then interview them, look over those interviews, work out what the nature of that engagement with the U-boat, whether it was unsuccessful or successful, uh, and then begin to start thinking about, well, okay, well, well, how could we have done it better? Uh, they combine it um, with um, uh, a really talented set of scientists in their operational research uh, section, uh, led by, I think, P- Professor Blackett, um, who, who take a scientific approach to that, to that data. Um, and, uh, and and start to sort of explore things like, OK, well, how can we stop the aircraft from being seen at longer ranges? Well, let's explore painting them different colours. And you end up with the, yeah, the famous white crows that make them harder to see. You know, how can we destroy the U-boats with our depth charges more effectively? And, and they start exploring ideas of, well, don't go for the U-boat that's just submerged when it's seen you. Go for the U-boat that hasn't seen you and is because they're dozing on watch or whatever. Um, because actually you've got more chance of killing more U-boats uh, by capturing those, that proportion and setting your few settings on the depth charge at sort of 20 feet than, than trying to set them at 150 feet and chasing after a U-boat that, you know, is gone in lots of different directions and you invariably don't destroy. Um, and thinking about things like the spread of the depth charges, so raising it to a spacing of 100 feet um, because the air crew are not as accurate at dropping the depth charges as they think they are and therefore it's better to perhaps bracket and straddle them and get a couple of hits than than try and aim for you know four hits with a a closely packed set of depth charges so all of that lessons learned that operational research is really good and the bit that i love the most were um you know one example i'm sure it happened in in other places as well was what they called the sunday soviets that took place down at um the telecommunications research research establishment at swanage um, which combined the scientists who would have to talk about the new kit that had been brought in, uh, the senior officers who would have their sort of chests poked a little bit uh, by the scientists and the third set, uh, the aircrew, 
who would explain the difficulties of doing their operations, searching for U-boats and so, so forth. So all these different component parts are really working together, aren't that's they? Sort of, that, that, Correct. That's sort of de democratised, if you want to, if there's a better word for it. So ex exactly. I mean, it, it is, um, you know, the, the accounts that you get are um, senior officers coming away from it, fe feeling a little bit bruised. I mean, they've had their chest poked because... Um, because their sort of assertions that, well, all is well and your kit's fantastic and the operational concepts we've got are brilliant are, are taken to task by the air crew who have to deliver them, who all, uh, I'm sure, respected, of, uh, you know, hugely respectful of rank, but nonetheless would be would speak truth unto power. And uh, the scientists who would, you know, come up and point to the data and point to the technology and say, well, actually, no, because that's not how this works. Um, so I think it is democratised. I think it is... Um, uh, I, I think it's an excellent way of doing it, and 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 you, even today in the modern military, you'll see examples of exactly that sort of process taking place um, on you know, post-operational debriefs and so forth. They're left to get on with this by the air ministry, aren't they? Are they? Because because one of the sort of you know the traditional narratives of say the RAF's efforts in the war, e even though you've got the large fiefdoms within the air force, which I think is one of the striking things about it. You know, bomber command is a large, is a huge and important fiefdom within the RAF that Harris controls, or does he? We don't, you know, is he, how answerable is he to Portal? How much freedom of movement does he have? A coastal command basically left to get on with it because it's working, or are those senior officers then hauled up, having been to this Sunday Soviet, they're then hauled up in front of an air ministry chap who says, what on earth's going on? And you haven't got the money for this new device. And So a bit of both. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're given quite a lot of latitude to work out things like depth shard settings and um, painting their aircraft, all of that they can do themselves. Um, um, so, so they are given latitude. They are, they're clearly held to account by the Royal Navy. Um, that link is hugely important to ensure that the safe and timely arrival of convoys takes place. I think that is a productive relationship. So there are differences of opinion between the Royal Navy and the Fleet Air Arm, particularly about where Coastal Command hunts for U-boats, um, it, 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 it's episodic, but there's a, a view about, do you look at it, uh, do you look for U-boats in the Bay of Biscay, or do you look uh, for them around the margins of the convoys? And, and, and that argument sort of goes back and forth, but eventually uh, comes to the conclusion that around the convoys is the best. The bit where the, the, the relationship with the Air Ministry is not good, um, and, and it goes to the heart of the RAF's operational concepts for the Second World War, is, a, is about providing Coastal Command with the kit that they need to fight probably one of the most decisive battles of the Second World War. And that is particularly acute around very long range aircraft. Uh, the provision of, uh, of, of liberators is the one that's eventually provided, you know, from that period of 1941 to eventually 1943 when they arrive. And there is a blind spot. The RAF have a blind spot. The Air Ministry have a blind spot. Um, championed by Harris. I know he's not in the Air Ministry, but I, I think he, he, you know, he, he sort of has, has the zeitgeist up and, and captures it, which is um, if you want to destroy U-boats, you know, bomb Hamburg yeah. or bomb U-factories, yeah. bomb Alps. Yeah. Um, that's how you do it. You cut the arteries going after U-boats, whether it's in the Bay of Biscay or the Mid-Atlantic, that's going after capillaries. Yeah, I'm sort of paraphrasing one of the, the paragraph, uh, one of the speeches or, 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 or um, memos that he wrote. Um, so, so that bomber command view that that anything that isn't about um, area bombing yeah. of Germany is it is um, is is diluting that. I mean, the, the reason I asked is because the stuff bit little corner I know about is airborne. You know, the airborne forces endless problem with trying to get the aircraft they need, and obviously 
arguably they're a lot less they're a lot lower down the pecking order than than an anti-submarine effort i mean arguably they're, they're not even on that pecking order and they can't they're blocked at every turn because bomber command has has basically captured the argument and captured you know captured the air ministry's priorities and they can't get any aircraft and they can't get the cooperation up and and it's these i mean it's i think one of the really interesting uh, aspects of this is is the sort of jigsaw the completed jigsaw by 1944 of combined operations everyone chiming along and realizing they've got that actually they're going to just have to help each other out and cooperate and work together it, it takes a long time for this to happen but that's when when that does happen that's when suddenly things you know the t- all the tipping points occur isn't it but also that's because because air power in 1939 when the war begins is still so new and it and it and it's evolving so quickly that people just haven't worked out and obviously you know early on in the war as you rightly point out um ben um you know there's over dependence on the bomber and the bomber all getting through and all that and a sort of you know just in the nick of time blated realization that we need more fighter defense and all the rest of it uh, and, and you know there isn't this lack you know there is a sort of there hasn't been much thought um in 1940 in France for, you know, how cl- what close air support's going to look like. I mean, you know, it's just, you know, the Allied air striking force and all the rest of it. In, in France, it's, it's hopeless, isn't it? Uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is hopeless. And, um, uh, and I think you, you begin to see... Um, so I'll, I'll answer Al's Al sort of point first, because I think it's a really interesting year. What, how, how bad does it have to get for the air ministry and coastal command before the, 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 the good decisions happen? And, and it isn't until 1943... And um, uh, and and it's it, it's reached crisis point, and and people have to tell bomber command that there isn't going to be a bomber offensive because there isn't going to be the fuel to uh, to put into your thousand bombers to get to Germany unless you protect the safe and timely arrival of the convoys. So it's only when that penny drops with people like Churchill and Roosevelt that you begin to see you know what is in a, what is only forty aircraft. I mean, you know, hardly any in the big scheme of things. Forty liberators being being released you know we lose 53 liberators on one raid to ploesti yes um in the august of the same year put in perspective so so um Gosh, that's 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 such a great uh statistic that because the because the the levers that you need to pull to win the battle of the atlantic as you point out uh are, are rel- you know relatively resource cheap aren't they compared to a Yes, and, and it's not as if anyone underestimates the importance of the of the Atlantic as the theatre of war. I mean, you know, Churchill recognises it's the most important theatre of the war. I mean, it just is. I mean, it's, it's inarguable. And, and, and you know, we should we should also kind of expand it as well, but, you know, this blind spot if we may, because the other bit that takes too long to arrive um, are the, the escort carriers. Um, so, uh, and I think you've spoken about it on We Have Ways before, but, you know, Audacity, the first escort carrier, um, uh, sales in December 1941, and everyone gets to the point that this makes a big difference, both the UK and the and the Germans as well. That this makes a big difference to convoy protection. But we don't see escort carriers arrive again until 1943. That's because I think there are 11 that the British ordered. Uh, that's because five of them are uh, supposed to be built in British shipyards, but we won't release the passenger liners to be converted because we want to do trip troop convoys. So we've got a blind spot in the UK there. Uh, and the remaining six are supposed to be built in uh, U.S. shipyards, but um, unusually for, for American uh, industry, the, the standards aren't particularly good. The plating joints aren't particularly good. And when they come out, you know, one's kept for training and the others get siphoned off to help with um, uh, with amphibious operations in the Mediterranean. So you don't begin to see escort carriers 
you know, um, plugging that mid-Atlantic gap, you know, hunting for U-boats around the convoys until 1943 as well. So, so it's not, you know, by which it's, time it's, it's kind of almost the over, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it, yeah, well, indeed, and and um, and you know, all of these things come to um, you know, come to make a, a great um, solution at the same time. But you're right about air support as well, James. I mean, that was a blind spot too for 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 the early part of the war. Yeah, well, I've always been absolutely fascinated by the development of the tactical air forces, and and you know the debt I think we owe to to um, Tedder and uh, Mary Cunningham, and and also people like Tommy Elmhurst, you know, who obviously not don't get the recognition that they deserve, but are playing an absolutely vital role in, you know, in the administration of it of kind of that reorganisation. I mean, you know, that bit is every bit as important as the charisma and vision of of someone like Cunningham. Um, but that development that sort of is sort of slowly but surely kind of moving into into being in the autumn of 1941 out in North Africa and and, and comes of age in the summer of 1942 is 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 just fascinating, isn't it? And it's yeah. and it's transformative. And it goes back to to I think you know good lessons learned. So yeah. so after the, the the kicking that we receive in 1940 in France. Um, the RAF and the army sit down and they do some experimentation, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Woodall and Group Captain Wan, and they come up with some recommendations about how do you change the command and control so that requests aren't going up through a really slow hierarchy. Uh, they talk about exactly, as you say, the requirement for a tactical air force, one with mobility, which Tommy Elmhurst then really develops um, in the uh, in the Desert Air Force. And they begin to experiment, experiment with... Um, uh, with aircraft, with the, the hurricane initially, and then uh, the Kitty Hawk, putting uh, putting more and more bombs on on those aircraft. I mean, I find it um, I, one of the, the more charming bits of uh, of that account is the the nervousness of the uh, the RAF and the Australian pilots who uh, have two two hundred and fifty pound bombs put on a Kitty Hawk, and they think, "Crikey, this is this is a bit dodgy." And and within the space of about eighteen months, they're then flying with two five hundred pound bombs under the wings. And a thousand pound bomb bomb under the fuselage. You know, it's two thousand pounds of bombs. I mean, that's you know, that's approaching a medium bomber's lift. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's what a that's what a Dornier seventeen is capable yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, there's this sort of experiment. There's a, a good lessons learned after a kicking in France, uh, and then there's this constant evolution as people are trying different things, um, to, uh, adapting equipment that they've got, like the Kitty Hawk or the Hurricane. Um, to um, you know, to produce the effects that they need on the ground, uh, and it's um, you know it reflects really well, I think, on the air force and the army. What what is it about the air force that 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 makes it an organisation that can do that? Because after all, big sort of stratified hierarchical organisations with people watching watching out for their careers and or people who've got themselves a nice a nice cushy number who don't want who don't want to be winkled out of that cushy number or 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 you know who 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 would rather be flying ops than than you know work you know all the all the thing rather than a desk all these things that that go into a brew of a of a big organisation i know and i know the ref is is modern it's snazzy it's it's you know the, the, the thing you've the thing i i've talked about this a lot on the podcast the thing you've got to forget that a lancaster is you know a dusty old aeroplane with propellers it's a stealth bomber it's the absolute 100% cutting edge tech of the time the tempest is an f-35 or whatever you know like you've got to think of it like that what is it about the ref that it's able to to make these kind of big changes a- apart from the sort of the raw humiliation of 1940 because also the ref 
takes two things from 1940, which is France goes terribly, the Battle of Britain goes very, very well. Yeah. So how is the organisation able to do that? So I, so I think it's hit and miss. I mean, I think, I, I think where, it, um, so not all of the RAF does do that incredibly well. And uh, I, mean, I found it extraordinary, for instance, that you are still seeing, for instance, number one fighter wing, which is the wing that goes to northern Australia to, um, in 1943 to protect um, uh, to protect uh, Darwin and that area from, from the Japanese raids. You know, one RAF squadron, two, two Royal Australian Air Force squadrons uh, who come from the UK, come from Kenley. And they're, they're, still, um, they're still using big, uh, big wing tactics, despite the fact that they've been discredited, you know, well before. But, um, uh, and this, you know, but what I took from that was that there wasn't a good lessons learned process. There wasn't a culture of people saying, hey, hang on, you know, this is taking us 45 minutes to get into the air and, uh, and we're one big lump and the Japanese can then cope with this far more easily than if we're coming at them from different directions. Just doesn't make sense. You know, that, that hadn't occurred in, in either Kenley uh, before they go to Australia or in the early bits of Australia. So it is hit and miss. Where it does work, I think, is where you have got commanders that are, um, uh, that are that are willing to listen uh, and uh, and take the view that um, both uh, your conflict and parts of conflict will have a unique nature and and you've got to adapt to it um, and and it's whoever adapts fastest is probably going to be uh, the side that wins and um, and some people I think really get that um, coastal command gets it I think you're absolutely right that Desert Air Force gets it and some others. Um, perhaps that bit of fighter command don't get it so quickly, and you and you do see these these sort of misfires where um, RAF um, tactics are, 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 are you know are not good. And fighter sweeps, I think, is another example of that. In 1941, uh, with a measure of effect of what they're achieving is um, you know is not good. And uh, and I think Lee Mallory, who I, who I know James is a huge fan of. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, Lee Mallory, you know, at the end of it, is continuing to justify um, the losses that they've accepted over France for, for what I think people really understand is very marginal gain. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? It's this, it's this thing about the sort of, you know, 53 liberators lost on the Plasti raid, you know, 40 for Coastal Command. Um, it's, it's that same, sometimes, you know, right at the very top, there just isn't that right proportion of divvying up of... of of the past and and you know fighter commands hogging of spitfires in 1941 and early part of 1942 is just you know it's just you know, with the benefit of hindsight but i think even at the time it must have seemed absolutely nonsensical i mean to the guys out in the middle east the guys sort of trying to defend malta in 1941 and 1942 you know malta turns into this massive epic siege which it should never have done I mean, you know, all you had to do, if you if you put a, you know, sent over 100, 150 Spitfires in 1941, Luftwaffe, because the, the Luftwaffe, the, the Regia Aeronautica just didn't have the wherewithal or the kind of desire to kind of press home anything. So the onus is really on the Luftwaffe to do anything meaningful against, against Malta in terms of, you know, a, 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 an air, a air assault. And... They cannot be everywhere. You know, they're already by 1941, the Luftwaffe is suffering. It's still reeling from the Battle of Britain. It's got so many commitments, whether it be the Eastern Front and Barbarossa from the middle of 1941 to what's going on in the Western Desert to, you know, elsewhere. So it's never, ever going to have enough resources to be able to combat more than 150 Spitfires. And it is amazing that the moment that Park takes over in July 1942, and he's got, you know, 50, 75 to 100 Spitfires, it's all over. 
you know, the, the, the Luftwaffe have no way of coming back from that. You know, and they try in October 1942 and they get absolutely trounced. And, and it's uh, what I find, I just find absolutely amazing is how is it that that is not startlingly obvious to people? I mean, how can it be that the, you know, how can Lee Mallory and Sholto Douglas continue with these utterly pointless rhubarbs in 1941 where they're achieving absolutely zero? And in fact, they're doing the complete opposite of what the, you know, they're, they're mirroring what the Luftwaffe was doing in 1940 and in which it failed at. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and the statistics speak for themselves. So, so um, from 14th of June um, uh, of 1941 to the 31st of December, Fighter Command um, uh, claims that it shot down 731 German aircraft for the loss of 411. They actually only shot down 150, sorry, the Germans only lost 154 aircraft, of which 51 were accidents and 11 were shot over the United Kingdom yeah, on, on German race. I mean, that's a shocker, isn't it? It is. It's a scandal. And we're tying down 75 fighter squadrons in fighter command at a time, uh, I think you're absolutely right, James, where Malt, it, it could have tipped the balance in, in Malta, which could have tipped the balance in the Mediterranean. Um, and similarly, you know, had those come out in the summer of 1941 to places like Singapore and replaced, you know, the decrepit buffaloes that were no match for Japanese zeros, then um, who knows? You might, you might then have been into a deterrence um, uh, opportunity there. And, and uh, dissuaded the Japanese from from trying to take take on Malaya. If you put enough of them out, yes, so, because because uh, you know decent fighter defence and and uh, you know is is a false multiplier, isn't it? You know you, yeah. you, you need fewer on the ground yeah. if you if you've got it sorted in the air. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, or you know, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, the Japanese assault on on Malaya and and Singapore in, um, in December to February 1942 um, is you know air power is at, at, at the heart of their initial operations. You know that is that is the enabling factor. So I have to ask the inevitable question: Why, if it's so obvious now? <laughs> well, I think it's I, I think it was obvious at the time, actually. Well, I, well, I, well the... I, I, I certainly think it was obvious if you're in Singapore and Malta. Um, I think, <laughs> I the, think it was um, obvious I, if you're in in the in RF Middle East as well. I mean, you know that that yes, is why Tedder yeah. eventually says Basil Embry yep. goes, "What the hell is going on?" You know, I want yeah. you to, I, you know, because. I mean, cases like Malta and the cases like um, um, Singapore, you know, they've got, it's not B-list commanders they send out there, it's kind of C and D-list commanders. You, you know, um, Hugh Pugh Lloyd has a background in bombers, not fighters. He doesn't know the first thing about what he's done. He doesn't seem to make any effort to kind of understand any kind of meaningful tactical nous whatsoever. Uh, you know, and he's all at sea. And so he's not asking the right questions. So he does his command. That's absolutely right. So, that, so he, he, he doesn't. Um, I mean, it's interesting, he, uh, one of the, the quotes in, in volume one is from an admiral about the same time frame saying, so the admiral gets it in Malta, uh, right. saying, saying yep. you know, we should, get, we should have mosquitoes and we should have spitfires spit out here. This is crazy. Yep. So, he, so he gets it. But, um, uh, but I think, I mean, I think why doesn't the penny drop? I think there's a lot to do with um, the difficulties of trying to influence through telegrams thousands of miles away. Absolutely. Versus, I think that's it. Versus people in the air, you know, Lee Mallory being able to walk down the corridor and, uh, and you know, buttonhole someone and say, ah, oh, yes, but what you don't understand is I'm winning the initiative. Um, or if I wasn't doing this, these German aircraft would go to the Eastern Front and this is how we persuade Stalin that we're contributing, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and I, I, you know, I would imagine um, that, um, that your telegram, no matter how beautifully it's written and persuasive the arguments, struggles against you know the proximity of people like Lee Mallory arguing their case and Harris as well arguing their case in the corridors of power 
We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I mean, it's some staggering figure. It's something like, you know, 9,800 Spitfires built between November 1940 and December 1941. It's a ballpark figure, but it's, it's something like that. And not a single one leaves UK shores. Yeah. yeah. In that time. That's amazing. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, even if you'd done 50-50, you'd still be leaving 5,000 for fight to command. Yeah. I mean, you but, know, or 4,000 or to bring that to bring that completely up to date, for instance, so in Afghanistan, you know, in the last twenty years, if there's a you 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 can write as eloquent an email about how what you absolutely need is a piece of kit that will do a job properly, and someone in the Ministry of Defence proximity to power um, overrides the the chap in the field, no, and, the, and that what once things get really far away, they just get that much more difficult to enforce is, is that is that still so, the so, case so is... so um so i would say it's different I mean, now a because um uh for, for for so many reasons and the fact that we're you know we're talking over zoom now illustrates how, yes, yeah. how things are very different now so so certainly for the whole of the, the um the, the afghan campaign and the iraq yeah we um uh, deployed uk forces had vtc had really good communications so so one was able to sort of you know to have those ability uh, the ability to you know to talk to your your boss in london or whatever and explain what your challenges were and, and then the other uh, key difference is of course people came out to visit which um um yeah which was hugely welcome uh, whereas of course um you know very hard for members of the air ministry to get out to singapore even before yeah. uh, the invasion you know that was a, that was a you know that was a, something that took a month out of their calendar uh, probably yeah. Whereas, whereas it's very yeah. easy for people to fly out from London uh, to uh, to Kandahar or to Bastion, um, uh, you know, and, and do a trip within a week and be, you know, from Monday to Friday. I mean, that happened very routinely. So I think it's less. I think it's less of an issue now. But it, but it certainly was then. And um, and just um, the amount of volume of stuff you can send back. Yeah, lots. Uh, you know, weighty word documents that explain yeah. your rationale as opposed to a you know, um, 50 words telegram because you, you know, yeah. bandwidth is, is, is difficult in the 1940s. But, but having someone who can bang on a desk in Whitehall, uh, quite clearly, hugely advantageous to the, because to these fiefdoms within the yeah. RAF, because after all, you're also talking about big personalities, your Tedders, for instance, or, or your Lee Mallory's who've got to the top of their tree perch and they don't want, they don't want knocking off and it would diminish Lee Mallory's influence, wouldn't it, if he sent squadrons abroad? Yeah, it, and I, it, 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 it I think, diminish his his weapon literally. I, I think the other really interesting dynamic is is when we talk about, for instance, the air, how air support um, to to um, uh, to the campaign in North Africa develops. Um, it, it, it's also quite interesting that you, you you have the fighters and bombers within one command under Tedder, and then you have the de- Desert Air Force as an element of that. Um, and you also don't really have. Um, strategic targets in the way that you have with the Ruhr in Berlin. You you have Benghazi and you have Tripoli uh, and you have Tobruk when when the Germans you know have captured it. So so the thing is much tidier. And people like Tedder and Conningham working for Tedder can um, you can contribute to a joint campaign without the distraction of someone saying we can unilaterally win the war. Um, you just need to give us a bit more time uh, over Berlin, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. 
But but I also think what's going on in in the Middle East in in nineteen. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, these first years of the war. I mean, th- this is the time of where you're sort of thinking, okay, so some of our kind of pre pre war perceptions have not proved to be correct. Um, we don't just need commands. Uh, we do need to think about tactical air power. We do need to actually pull our finger out um, and support coastal command because actually the Battle of the Atlantic is really important and actually air power in the Battle of the Atlantic is more important than we'd realised beforehand. Um, in terms of, of of what's going on in the Middle East, we need to kind of sort of think about support that. We actually, gosh, OK, so Singapore is now gone. Um, so is Malaya. We need to think about that. That is going to require air support. Um, can we just chuck out our obsolescent hurricanes? Mm, well, no, not really. That needs another thing. You know, we are going to have to get Spitfires out there. Um, but it takes time for all that to, to work out. And it also takes time to work out who your ace air commanders are, you know, because you can only learn that by, by being, you know, by experience and by, by being tested. And obviously you have the, you know, Lee Manor and Shelter Douglas have the, have the advantage of being, um, you know, in the, close to the corridors of power. But, but it's also, you know, by 1942, you can see that everything is starting to kind of slot into place. You know, you've learned those early lessons. You've learned what doesn't work and what, what, what the right direction in which to go in. And suddenly you can see this kind of sort of, this sort of flowering of it, can't you? You can see how it's all starting to come together and you're getting the right people in the right place. So I think it is proximity to power is absolutely key to the kind of, you know, the complete bulls up of having too many Spitfires in the UK in 1941 and not elsewhere. But it's also about getting the right people in the right in the right jobs. So and what you see in the Middle East, I think, is this. I've, I've always seen it as this sort of terrific excitement at the highest air commander levels that they're onto something which is pioneering and exciting and new and potentially game changing. And when the Americans come in after Operation Torch, I mean, obviously they're in before, you know, Brereton's in before with the, and the, you've got the Halpro detachment and all the rest of it. But 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 when they start moving into Tunisia. And and you've got um, you know Larry Cooter joining uh, you know American who's been in, uh, who's been writing doctrine for the United States um, Allied Air Force, um, Army Air Force before the war, and suddenly he's working cap in hand with with Cunningham, and they're all really tight. They all get on really okay. There's you know as as of everything else, sort of national uh, um, issues start to sort of play their part. But generally speaking, Brereton, uh, um, Doolittle, Spots, Cooter, Tedder. Cunningham, they're all pretty much working together. There's a, they're forging a friendship as well as this kind of sort of exciting um, atmosphere where air power is developing and, and, and becoming an absolutely key part of, of, of combined operations within the Allied Western Allied forces. You, you can see this, this sort of developing in that period, and I think that's incredibly exciting. I, I think it is, and I think one of the, the really interesting bits about that, uh, that period is, is how the, the US Army Air Force um, and the US Army, and Eisenhower in particular, look at the relationship between the 8th Army and the Desert Air Force and sort of say, well, hang on, we haven't got that. Um, the US Army still takes the view that uh, their ground commanders own the battle space and therefore US Army Air Force assets should be doing exactly what the ground commander wants, including uh, an air umbrella permanently over the manoeuvring ground troops. Which is why you have this spat between Cunningham and Patton. Correct, exactly right. And, and, and it's Eisenhower, and Cunningham is only there because Eisenhower sees what's going on in, in Torch um, in Tunisia, recognises that Cunningham has, has got a better approach um, and has developed a better relationship with the 8th Army, where the 8th Army aren't the ones who are saying, we constantly need an air umbrella over us 
because we're worried about air superiority. They've become mature enough to say, no, no, we understand that you get air superiority by attacking airfields, by attacking uh, the command and control of the Air Force, by attacking radars. And you also support us by air interdiction as much as close air support. So, so Eisenhower recognises that there is goodness in the in the UK's approach and brings Conningham over to to kind of smash heads together, which is which is um, you know, what happens with Patton. And, and I think you know all credit you know to the Americans because you know there's a there's a, a an organisation or a nation that constantly uh, innovates and evolves. You know people like um, Eisenhower and, and uh, General Pete Casada you know, actually develop it even further. And um, and the institutional baggage the Americans bring in, particularly by not having an independent air force, you know, actually they uh, be- you know, becomes less of a problem as they go on. Uh, that's, I mean, it's simply that the fact that their air force is, is supposedly not independent. I mean, because uh, that, that, that after all is, if you're a soldier... In 1940, you you are saying where the, where the fuck are the Orient? Correct. Yeah. What's what, where where are they? And if and by 1942, it, it, as you say, they've matured to the point where if the RAF aren't overhead, it doesn't necessarily mean things have gone wrong. I mean that's that's a big step because after all, that becomes that becomes you know presence of ally of your aircraft in the sky is a is a huge sort of. Uh, you know, let alone what it can actually do tactically, what it can do in morale terms or in terms of feeling like you're part of a unified battlefield and that people higher up have got your back is an, inc- is an incredibly port- important factor, isn't it? And it occurs at the same time, and it occurs for a number of reasons. I mean, the, I think the Army understands the Air Force's role and the requirement for air superiority uh, as, as the priority in any joint campaign. The Army understand that. They've also got more bofers now, so they're able to protect themselves a little bit, you could disperse in the desert and so forth. But it is fascinating that the army, the Eighth Army, has come to that conclusion at the same time as the Africa Corps have not. Um, so the Africa Corps and and and, and Rommel, who who never really understands engages with his, never really understands air power and doesn't engage with the Luftwaffe. You know, it's still talking about air umbrellas and you know, I haven't seen you today, have I? You know, therefore you can't have been doing anything useful. You know, it, you know, is it, it, something that caricatures the sort of the Luftwaffe's approach. So the Eighth Army beat the Luftwaffe in, in that and having that sort of mature understanding. But literally at their own game, because it's the Luftwaffe that have evolved all this in the first place. And that, that, that that's the thing that characterises uh, May 1940, isn't it? Is that this is what the Luftwaffe has been designed for, its role. The generals understand this. The idea, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, that, that, that Rommel two years later still doesn't get it. Or, or however, however many years into its development, still doesn't. Well, get it's that. really interesting. This is this is sort of again. There's this kind of mirroring because in the summer of 1942, suddenly um, there is a, a this this sort of symbiosis um, developing within Eighth Army and the Desert Air Force at precisely the same time as Rommel's relationship with von Voldo. I think he was. He was the commander of the Luftwaffe in North Africa. Is completely breaking down. So it's it's absolutely opposite. It's really, and just really to, interesting. Just to confuse it even more, um, whilst people like Conningham, um, people like Broadfer- Broadhurst, who take a, take over the Desert Air Force when Conningham moves on, um, people like um, Brown, who leads um, 84 Group in Second Tactical Air Force in Northwest Europe, they, they often come under quite a lot of criticism from the Air Ministry for being too close to the Army. Um, uh, you know, there's a charming story of Conningham. Um, uh, after Tripoli has fallen, asking on his North African star to have 
the eight, which is what all members of the eighth army uh, were entitled to wear on their North African star. And Cunningham, who feels that he's been a, a pretty fundamental part in eighth army victories, asks the air ministry, could, could he have something similar? And is told, no, <laughs> that's not what Air Force, uh, Air Vice Marshals have on their medals. So um, Brown is almost sacked um, in the campaign in Northwest Europe for getting too close um, to uh, to the to the Canadian army in, in that instance. So so there is also this um, this cultural fear within the air force. You know, twenty years after its independence, uh, that um, uh, that um, you know we don't want to be an auxiliary to any of the services. Therefore, absolutely play your contribution to a joint campaign, but just remember who you work for, sunshine. Um. Um, but Ben, before we go, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to just sort of touch on the Far East because, again, that's a that's something. I mean, you know, 14 far well, is forgotten. The, the air part of the, in that victory well, is I, completely forgotten. And I, I was going to point out that, that of course, this, these two volumes—it's Britain and the Commonwealth's War in the Air—is the thing. The, the the other thing that that I think is really really important, and that that you know that that is the Far East an extension of our theatre or the Australian and, you, you, you know, the, the, whose theatre is it? The, 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 the imperial phase of the war. Um, who does that theatre belong to in a way? Is it ours or is it is it the uh, Commonwealth's or is it the Americans' theatre? So I think... And, and, yeah. So, so, oh, so, so I think there's kind of two distinct parts to it. There's the, the Burma theatre, which I would say is the very much the imperial theatre... And uh, and there's some fascinating um, stories there, you know, both in terms of third tactical air force on air support, but um, perhaps more uniquely in the war, the use of air transport that gives Slim's 14th Army um, uh, operational and tactical mobility and allows them to to, uh, to to effectively overcome the really limited lines of communication in Burma and eventually take Rangoon in 1945. I think that's an amazing story and, and you know James touches it on his Burma book on sort of resupplying the admin box and so forth when it's isolated and it, and it allows the army to take a totally different operational approach um, which they wouldn't be able to do without air transport and they wouldn't have been able to do air transport without air superiority so it's fascinating so that's but I think it, isn't it isn't it it's the fifth it's the fifth Indian infantry division is the first division ever to be transported from one theater to another you know from one one part of, into a battle space by air alone at the Battle of Imphal. I mean, that, that's just phenomenal. I think that's at the end of March, end of March, nineteen forty-four. I mean, it's just and then and then having learned that's extraordinary, um, having learned that two divisions, I think it's the fifth and the seventeenth, are then uh, transformed so that of the three brigades, one of them is an air portable brigade, so entirely portable by uh, by uh, by Dakotas, um, including you know twenty-five pounders on a different axle and all this sort of stuff, which allows them to. To then advance and it's a fascinating story and, and i know many of your listeners will have read defeat into victory and um, um, um it's a fascinating story but like all good stories there's a it's on a knife edge because they just managed to do it before the monsoon kicks in in may and um and you know it's right up to the wire otherwise you know they they, they wouldn't have defeated the largest uh japanese army in the field uh which you know wouldn't have been a quite such a good story so so that's the end <laughs> But I think the um, the other one that's really fascinating, and I knew far too little about, um, um, is the Australian campaign in New Guinea, which is a part of uh, the American Empire, if you want to call it that, under under MacArthur, and um, and from an air perspective, um, the Australians who developed their own tactical air force, number one Australian tactical air force, comes from uh, Ten Group, 
based largely on Kitty Hawks and bow fighters and, uh, and those sorts of aircraft. But they're doing it as a junior partner uh, to the US um, uh, Fifth Air Force uh, under General Keeney. And I think it's fascinating because, um, because you see, it's, it's really interesting from a, uh, you know, as a modern day soldier, because you see uh, the Australians having to cope with all the challenges of being a junior partner. Um, to the Americans and sometimes being given roles that are dangerous but perhaps lack the glamour of the full-on drive to the Philippines and then on to Japan. I wonder why you'd be talking about that. (laughs) Why does that spring to mind uh, 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 after the last couple of decades? Uh, The the other thing though is that that the the Commonwealth, aside from its its theatres, theatre commitments, is is it's like a fruitcake, isn't it? The RAF. There's there's. Those are your words, from... Al, not mine. Well, well, <laughs> I, well, I'm quite happy to stand by them. Um, you know that that there's 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 people from all over the world, yeah. you know, baked into the cake, as it were. A, a friend of mine's father was a Glaswegian who emigrated to Tasmania, who then came back and flew in uh, a Canadian Coastal Command Squadron. You know that that was his his Commonwealth journey. And that those, you know, you often read about crews being a completely uh, uh, a mixed, you know, an Irishman in the, an Irishman, a, a, a Kiwi, uh, or whatever, you, you know, and, and the, 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 the most famous squadrons, you know, the 617 are famously uh, this sort of Commonwealth mix. That That's something that, you know, in the army, you've got, you've got the Canadian army, you've got Canloan officers um, and, and all those sort of schemes. Why did the RAF opt to do this sort of jumbling up? So, so I think it comes to the, um, so the, the, there's a couple of parts. First of all, it comes to their experience before the Second World War starts. So, um, so Trenchard, uh, you know, I, I think he's on record as saying, but certainly he's, I think it's accurate in terms of his intent. Um, always sort of said, look, this is the Royal Air Force. It's not the British Air Force. You know, it is, it is about the empire. And therefore you have people, you know, like Park, um, uh, who who come to Britain uh, from New Zealand in the 20s and 30s and uh, and are part of this Empire Air Force, notwithstanding the fact that there's a Royal Australian Air Force and there's a Royal New Zealand Air Force. And um, so you have that already baked in and that, that degree of um, uh, cosmopolitan sort of um, uh, structures and, and people, that fruitcake as you describe it. And then, of course, when war starts, um, I, I think because air power is... Um, it, you know, is, is, is the new kid on the block, if you like, in terms of warfare. Uh, most of the Commonwealth nations also wanted to contribute to that endeavour. Uh, and I think starting off the, the British Commonwealth Air Training Programme, um, which, which recognises that um, you're going to have to train people outside of the UK because the UK is going to be, UK airspace is going to be a battlefield and therefore you're going to have airfields in Africa and, and, and particularly Canada, I think begins to sort of, bake it in as well. So people are being trained together as a Commonwealth, um, particularly in Canada, before they they come to the United Kingdom. I think the other flavour to add in is uh, is the occupied countries. Um, So the Poles coming, you know, almost en masse as an air force, you know, Czechs to a certain degree, Norwegians, Dutch, French and so forth. Um, And, and, you know, that coming um, uh, already trained, um, already um, with you know, great combat experience in some cases, particularly to Poles. And therefore, um, I, I think people, you know, understand actually these you know, these individuals have got talents that, um, you know, with a bit of English language training or whatever, 
we can we can start to introduce and they make the organization better and i think that's um a, a, yeah, a remarkable story uh, just how low level that tactical um um fusion is taking place as you say sometimes sometimes particularly with the commonwealth but sometimes on a uh, on a lancaster bomber uh, tr- yeah in a truly international style True. and that's a reflection of 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 the uk being the 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 the, cent- the nodal point of empire rather than you, you know so if you're i mean it's obviously if you're if if you're a university graduate from wellington you can turn up in england and getting, you know, these these things are all interchangeable because it's literally a global effort, yeah. literally a global network performing a global yeah, effort. Yeah, and, 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 and I think it's also, so certainly that's the case for the Commonwealth. And then I think for the occupied countries, I think it's, you know, it's Britain being, you know, the frontline state um, yeah. defending democracy uh, and, and fighting against, uh, you know, fighting, fighting against Hitler. So so why wouldn't, if, so if you're passionate about, Poland being independent or Czechoslovakia being free, you know, London is the place to go to, and and um, yeah, particularly after the fall of France, and, and that's what happens. And and what um, again, there's some really sort of, um, you know, war's a horrid thing, but there are some really sort of wonderful things that come out of it, or, or heartwarming. Probably wonderful is yeah. quite heartwarming. And one yeah. of the things that really struck me was um, was the Polish attitude, um, particularly when they. Uh, they come become free after the fall of communism and how the Poles, uh, the new Polish government set about um, rewarding um, uh, the, the Commonwealth, the British uh, Air Force pilots or, or air crew that have fought with them. And, and most acutely, I think that was with the South African squadrons that had helped um, Warsaw during its uprising. And the South African squadrons who were flying from yeah. Brindisi, Brindisi lost a lot of uh, a, a lot of air crew. Uh, doing that, I mean, they were losing an aircraft per ton of supplies dropped. It was, you know, that stark. Um, and um, the Poles in 1992 looked up all of these aircrew in the South African squadrons and uh, and gave, you know, gave uh, 60 or so uh, Polish awards to them in Johannesburg or or Cape Town or wherever they were. And I, I think that speaks volumes about the or tour. Norfolk is where the guy I interviewed was. Uh, I think he was in Norfolk and he'd he'd flown with 24 squadron. Which was and, South African. And he got one, Eddie. Yeah, and I think that says a lot of fighting for, and that they remembered it. You know, some sixty years after the end, or fifty years after the end, they still looked them up and still took the time to do it. Almost immediately after the fall of communism, which I think shows it was a priority. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, as ever, I always say this when we have a. a, a yeah, yeah, but this has been could, really could, good. Well, it's been really no, but we could talk forever. We're about really this. good. I mean, it's been it, fantastic. You know, myriad, myriad of subjects, and I want. You know, I want to know more about I want to know more about the RAF in Australia and all that. But yeah. we'll we'll so we'll have to have you back on, Ben. Um, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Um, also, uh, just to let the listeners know, Ben sent both of us a delicious bottle of slow gin. Um, uh, so uh, that that sets a new bar, I think, for any contributor to weird ways. <laughs> I can see alcohol. I can see what you've done. You're not coming on. for any future any future guests that they've now they've now got um, they've now got the bar to get over. I <laughs> they got their work cut out. But thanks very much. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, that was Ben Kite. We'll see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.